0: Our our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 130. I've mentioned in previous weeks that uh, during the season of Lent, we're reading many of the the penitential, the repenting psalms as a way of thinking about what the cross means and and how we should be approaching uh, the Easter season. So Luke is going to come and read to us from Psalm 130. Luke, if you'd come now. Psalm 130. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all their iniquities. We are continuing our sermon series in First Samuel. Uh, First Samuel, especially for those who are visiting or, or are new today, it's all about God is King. God is king. So what does it mean as these as these kings rise up, as priests and prophets rise up and fall? Um, how is God acting as king over his people that for a long time have been rebellious and have had all, had all sorts of issues? We are kind of seeing how God's working, and, and specifically in today's text you'll see as as Samuel the judge uh, kind of comes to the end of, of his work, uh, what, what he's kind of saying is as things wrap up on, on, on his lifespan. But before, actually Randy's going to be coming and preaching, I'll give a, a slightly longer intro to him in a second, but Leah is going to come and read for us. It's on the back middle panel of your bulletin. Please follow along as she reads. Leah.
1: First Samuel chapter 12. And Samuel said to all Israel, behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and grey, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am, testifying against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you." They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still, that I may plead bef- with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the land of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt, and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt, and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them. Into them He sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazar, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them, and they cried out to the Lord, and said, We have sinned, because we have forsaken the Lord, and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies, that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jeroboam, and Barak, and Jopthah, in Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. And now, behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord, and serve him, and obey his voice, and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see the great things that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not the wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. You shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, in asking for yourselves a king." So Samuel called the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And and all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, "'Do not be afraid, you have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. The Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things He has done for you. But if you will do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your kings.
0: Well, we have the privilege this morning of hearing from Randy Palmer. Randy, many of you know him. He's one of the ruling elders here at the church, which means he's a lay elder. He's got a regular job, just like all of you, and yet he's going to be preaching God's word for us this morning. Randy, I'd like to pray for you as you come. God, thank you for Randy. Thank you for his calling to serve this church as an elder um, and as a man of God, as a faithful husband, father, and grandfather. Uh, please bless him as he preaches, as he un- explains and unpacks your word for us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Randy.
2: Okay, that, that sounds like you've got my voice. Good. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate that. And it's a real privilege to be here um, to open God's Word. 1 Samuel is a <clears throat> loaded book, and I've been really fascinated to see all that Ben has brought to us out of sometimes obscure-sounding passages, and it's just been beautiful to see. We now come to the uh, end of Samuel's life. There's a few more chapters in um, Samuel after his farewell address. It's sort of a funny thing. He gives a farewell address, and then he does a few more things that are quite dramatic, actually. But it's been an account of uh, a faithful man serving and teaching and leading Israel. Um, And uh, it's been a beautiful time to watch over the last three months This farewell address will um, teach us more of who God is and how He draws His people. And I think it's amazing how relevant it is for Canada here where we are now, even though it happened 3,000 years ago. And it's also remarkable how we have this historical account of something that happened 3,000 years ago. It's just really a a blessing. We're going to look at this address in three parts. First of all, a model ministry. Secondly, strong warnings, and third, great encouragement. So Saul's farewell address is in contrast with that of Eli, whose family was cut off because of treating the Lord with contempt. You recall that in one of the earlier chapters. Eli didn't get to make a farewell address. This is a historical account of how the Lord blessed Samuel, and Samuel humbly serving him. Look at verse 2, open your Bibles if you have them, chapter 2, chapter 12, verse 2, he says, And now behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. From my youth. Now, the King James translation has it from my childhood, and that might be more apt because if you recall how he came to the temple, how he served before the Lord, his mother came to the temple many times and prayed for a child. Those of you who have had difficulty praying for or having children may benefit, may appreciate that. He, she prayed for a child, finally the Lord granted it, and she named him Samuel, which means heard of God, of El, El being God. And as soon as he was weaned, he lived there. Now we don't know exactly what age that was, but that could have been two or three, and so he was given a little frock by his mother and he came to the temple and ran around, presumably taken care of by Eli, so the people would have seen him there as he came year after year, as they came year after year to offer sacrifices. He lived, as it were, in a fishbowl before the Lord, and chapter 2 says he grew in stature and in favor with God and with man, so people appreciated who Samuel was. Does that remind you, by the way, of anybody else? description of someone else. Of course, in Luke, that's how Luke describes Jesus. He grew in stature and in favor with God and man. Then look at verse 3. He says, whose ox have I taken, or whose donkey have I taken, and so forth. Note the word taken. It's in contrast to the uh, description of what uh, Samuel said the king would do. When they asked for a king, he would take. He would take your sons. He would take your daughters. He would take your grain and your grapes. But have I done any of that? He says no. Now, then he goes and says, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. The word his anointed is a really interesting one. The word in the Hebrew is Messiah. The Messiah means the anointed one. It's quite interesting, and in the Old Testament translation into the Greek, the the word is actually Christos or Christ. So I testify before you before His Messiah or His Christ. Now Samuel is probably thinking, and the people of Israel are probably thinking of uh, King Saul who was anointed, but it's an interesting little sidebar that he's standing before the Father and before His anointed, and we could interpret that as also being before Jesus. Their answer, verse 5, is no. You have not taken anything from us. Um, the Lord is uh, witness, they said, he is, wit- he is witness, you have not taken anything from, his, from uh, their hands. So we see here a model for ministry. Samuel has given us a model where he is the leader, spiritually and uh, physically uh, in, in terms of government. He is the judge, as it were, the king. He is the prophet and the priest but he did not profit from his ministry. You might think, I know of pastors for whom this is not true, pastors who have not been exemplary in the way Samuel was, pastors who have accumulated many, many millions of dollars, others who have engaged in grotesque impurity, others who have left the faith altogether. We know about some of those stories, and those are really sad spectacles, but this farewell speech by Samuel helps reset the expectation for spiritual leaders. One in which the leader doesn't profit, but also one who doesn't go his own way, who doesn't forsake the people, the Lord, as the people of Israel did again and again. Like Paul, may it be said of our spiritual leaders, and may we each be able to say, I've run the race and I've kept the faith. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4. Verses 6 to 8, this, this letter, Second Timothy, is probably uh, Paul's last letter, so it's as it were his farewell address. And he says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come, like Samuel, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, henceforth there is laid up for me The crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Notice what kind of crown he gets. It's not a gold one. It's not one of jewels. It's not a rich one, but it's a crown of righteousness. And also notice, it's not just for him. He says, he will award that on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That's all of us. And we just hope that we will be able to run the race right to the end, and be poured out, and then receive that crown of righteousness. Before we leave this first point, I would encourage us all to pray earnestly and regularly for Ben, and for the spiritual leadership of the church, leaders in all sorts of capacities, that he be that we be sober and watchful, that the Lord lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The temptations are out there to remain faithful, to serve the Lord with all our heart. So that's the first point, Samuel's ministry and setting expectations for spiritual leadership. Then we come to a set of warnings, and the basic message of the warnings is it's pointless And it's dangerous to go our own way. It's pointless to rebel, pointless to turn aside to empty things. Put more positively, it's pointless not to follow Samuel's example of steadfast service. The Lord is witness, he says, against their history and against their current actions where they have turned to empty things. Their history is one of calling out to the Lord. We see that in verse, verse 8 of chapter 12, and then inexplicably they abandoned him. When Jacob went into Egypt, he says, the Egyptians oppressed them, and then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place, but they forgot the Lord. So what happened? He sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. So you have Hazor, which is in the north, um, in what is now Syria. You have the Philistines down in the southwest next to the Mediterranean. You have Moab across the Jordan River in the east. Surrounding on all sides, they were attacked, and they abandoned him, and they were... They called out to the Lord, confessed their sins, he rescued them, and it just seesaw, it's just a seesaw, an endless cycle. And in verse 11, then it says, The Lord sent Jeroboam, that's Gideon, one who strives against Baal, and Barak, the Hebrew word is Bedan, it might mean Barak, it might mean uh, somebody else that we don't know, and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. I'm going to turn to Judges chapter 10 briefly and look at one of those, the account of where Israel, Israel was, Judges chapter 10, verse 6. This is just before Jephthah rescued them, but it's extraordinary. This is the people of Israel who have been brought through the Promised Land, brought to the Promised Land through, the, through Egypt, through the Red Sea, the Lord provided um, manna for them, the Lord provided quail for them, the Lord provided water for them, then they went into, across the, the Jordan River, the Jordan River was parted, they went through there, the Jericho f- fell, and they forgot the Lord, they forgot all that they had done, that He had done rather. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, this is after the, they entered the Promised Land, and they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, The gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. What were they thinking? It's amazing. And they forsook the Lord, and did not serve them. And it was interesting, in one of our recent uh, chapters in in, uh, 1 Samuel, the people, I think it was the Philistines, uh, the people around them remembered their history, remembered that these are the people whom the Lord had brought through with great power out of Egypt, and yet the people of Israel forgot their own history or chose to, uh, chose to re- reject the Lord forgetting their own history. And then back in chapter 12 of 1 Samuel, verse 12, bringing it up to the current day, the current day from Samuel's point of view, he says, and when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was king. So they were rejecting the Lord as king, they wanted to be like the other nations. He carries on in verse 14, if you will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, this is an encouragement, and if both you and the King who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. And then he comes with another warning. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, Then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. So he's calling on them to break this cycle, the cycle of going to the Lord, then forsaking the Lord, and going back to the Lord and forsaking the Lord. He's saying, follow the Lord with all your heart, or it will not be, the hand of the Lord will be against you. He's saying to them, you think you can find happiness outside of God, outside of the God of Israel? Think again. You think that you are greater than God? Think again, he says. And then this very interesting story of, as if to establish his bona fides, his right to be heard, he tells them he will call on the Lord to bring thunder and rain. Look at verses 16 and 17. Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before you, before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, in asking for yourselves a king." You might ask, well, why is it important that he mentions, is it not the wheat harvest today? The wheat harvest in Israel takes place in June, sorry, in May and June. And if you go, Google Gilgal and rainfall, average rainfall for June, you come up with 0.0 inches. And if you do the same thing for, for June, it's 0.0 inches. It generally does not, hap- does not happen, we don't have rain in, in May or June. So for there to be a torrential downpour at the behest of a prophet is a miracle. And the second thing at the wheat harvest, of course, if there's a torrential downpour, it could destroy or damage the crops and it would get their attention, and that's what happened. So Samuel called upon the Lord, verse 18, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and there was a good result, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Now, an interesting side question here that I only reflected on after reading this over many times was, When the people talk to Israel, to Samuel in subsequent verses, verses 19 to the end of the chapter, was that after the rainstorm? It seems to be because it's placed there. And indeed, in verse 16, Samuel says, stand still. So what happened during that rainstorm? Were they all just standing there, waiting for it, looking, listening, uh, and, and getting drenched as if to dramatize the point? We don't know for sure. But it's quite a sensational scene, isn't it, that they were being drenched in the middle of the dry season with thunder happening and all this happening around them. It's, it's quite a sensational scene. Now we'll get to the encouragements, but there are still a few warnings in verses 21 and 25. Verse 21, he says, do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty and then verse 25 if you will still do wickedly you shall be swept away both you and your king in verse 21 the phrase empty things is the same phrase that's used in genesis 1 when it describes the earth as being formless and void it's not something that you want to stake your life on it's not something that can profit or deliver we saw in the, in the chapter before uh, that Ben preached on last week, that bring, the Lord brings salvation. Something that's empty cannot bring salvation to the people of Israel. Most of us are not worshiping a, an idol, a carved idol like Dagon. Um, an empty thing could be anything that we pursue in place of God, and he's saying there is no point. It may be wrong on its own, like the destructive use of alcohol, or crooked business dealings or abuse, or maybe something that's good on its own, but ultimately wrong if it replaces God as our God. For example, material well-being, or our families, or our bodies, or our health. I'll give you an example, Uh, I'm enjoying watching birds more and more. And I'm looking forward in May to the return of the migratory species, looking forward to looking for a black-throated blue warbler and the scarlet tanagers and and the Canada warblers and so many other birds. But if that becomes my religion, it is empty. For some people, it is their religion, but it's empty if it replaces God. It's pointless. It won't produce ultimate happiness for me and it won't, pr- won't produce ultimate well-being for me. God requires my heart, requires our hearts, our devotion, our obedience. The greatest mistake that we can make is to walk away from the Lord. And yet, walking away from the Lord or forsaking the Lord, I would submit to you is perhaps the greatest challenge facing the Western church today. Now, I bounce that idea off an Indian friend of mine A very good friend who lives in Oshawa, he grew up in in India, and he said he doesn't think it's only afflicting the Western church, but also the church back home in India. Increasingly frequent it is that people who are brought up in the church turn away from what they have been taught. They're going to empty things as Samuel describes it. Many of you will remember Mike Changer. He was an intern here. And he went over to Halifax and planted a church there. I got to know Mike about 15 years ago when he was an intern at the Met uh, working with the youth. And when he was back visiting this summer, this past summer, I asked him, what percentage of those do you think that you were teaching, what percentage of those are still following the Lord? And he said, sub-50, so less than half. One of those interns is in in our Met, Stephen. and. We turned to him and—not interns, he was a youth, rather, at the time, sorry. <laughs> and we t- turned to him and said, what do you think it is, Stephen? And he said, less than that. Well, obviously less than—sub-50 fi- is, is anything less is sub, but not just on the edge there, perhaps greater than—well uh, more than a majority have left the Lord. Anecdotally, I hear—we hear similar numbers elsewhere. People are walking away from the Lord, forsaking the Lord. I think it's worth reflecting on what's going on here. Why are they doing this? It may reflect simply an unwillingness to accept the Bible, to accept what it teaches, especially when it conflicts with what our society is teaching. And our Western culture is like a tsunami sweeping over us. You have to be well grounded on the rock that is Jesus in order to withstand it. There are all sorts of reasons. It may reflect A struggle to understand whether the biblical accounts, the historical accounts in the Bible are in fact historical. It may be that some, for some who uh, who attended, stopped attending church during COVID, for some not all, that they stopped worshiping God altogether, either at home or church, and they turned aside to empty things, forgetting God. It may be that they've seen, that people have seen some of the awful things that some clergymen have done. They forget that the only perfect person in Christianity is Christ. There are piles of reasons, but this is a real thing that we need to address as churches, as members of the church. Uh, We need to remind each other and help others see that God is good, to taste and see that the Lord is good, even if it might not feel sometimes that He's there with us to patiently answer questions, to try to show our family, our friends, that it's pointless to think that we are bigger than God, pointless to think that 21st century Canadian culture is bigger than he is, that our culture gets to decide what is truth, and what is good, and what is evil. We need to put on the full armor of God so that we don't turn away to empty things. We need to take seriously the battle that we are engaged in. Each of us, whether we are 10 or 15 or 20, 29 or much older, we need to guard ourselves. Now, it's interesting what, Paul, what Samuel did in verse 7. He said, now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord. Now, this pleading, this pleading may be a sort of a judicial sense, like a lawyer pleading a case before a court, but it may also simply be pleading, as I would plead with us, that we... Um, plead with our friends and our families, plead with ourselves to cultivate this deep relationship with Jesus and to be careful, because anyone can fall. So that's some pretty heavy material. I was just trying to be realistic. Um, the people of Israel thought it was heavy, because you see in verse 19, they thought they were going to die. The people said to Samuel, all the people said to Samuel, perhaps they're drenched They said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord, your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. So having looked at Samuel's ministry and model for ministry and at the warnings, we now come to some great encouragement starting in verse 20. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. That's a beautiful sentence right there, isn't it? It's actually the most frequent command in the Bible, because, of course, we are prone to fear. We are prone to being afraid, and he says, do not be afraid. He says, verse 20, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And verse 22, for the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. The word uh, for be afraid is the same word that we see in verse 14 and 24 where it says, fear the Lord. Verse 14, if you will fear the Lord and serve Him, verse 24, only fear the Lord and faithful- and, and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. So you might ask, what's going on here? Are we to fear the Lord, or are we to be not afraid? And I think the answer is both. Some of you may recall the beautiful proverb about women, charm is deceptive, beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. In another proverb, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So that's the starting point. God is all-powerful and I am not. Once we fear the Lord and recognize that He is God and I am not, then I think Samuel is teaching here that we should not be afraid. He's trying to give a message of great encouragement and comfort, and that's good news for us no matter if we keep on coming back to sin, we can't seem to shake our sin. He tells us to keep coming back to Him. We may have had a lifetime full of so-called smaller sins, or maybe we have had a big one, or a few big ones that we regret for the le- rest of our lives, and he's saying, forget that and move ahead. You carry on, you carry on forward. Don't be afraid. That was the case here with the, with the people of Israel, another big one they did. Why? Because, in verse 22, the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake. And you might say, ah, but you don't know what I've done. And the Lord Jesus would say, yes, I do, and that's why I died for you on the cross. That's why I died for prostitutes like Rahab. That's why I died for murderers and adulterers like David, for people who forsook the Lord Jesus like uh, Peter, or for persecutors, people, violent men like Paul, Saul, later Paul. Consider Saul. who later became the Apostle Paul. In chapter 7 of of, of Acts, it, it recounts how Stephen was a man of God, full of grace and power, and yet they stoned him to death. Rocks were hurled at him until he died, and Saul was there approving of these actions. He was a violent man. He was threatening murder, dragging Christians off bound, so that Jesus asked, Why are you persecuting me? Not just persecuting my people. Saul, you're persecuting me. And yet, Jesus chose him to be his foremost apostle. In light of that, I encourage us to look at Philippians chapter 3, where we see how Paul frames his life in light of what he did. He recounts in Philippians 3 that he was a persecutor of the church. And then he says he was seeking the righteousness of God, forgetting what is behind, he says, that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Then chapter 3, verse 12, he says, not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Imagine Jesus making uh, this persecutor, Paul, his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do forgetting what lies behind, and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Why is that? Why is he able to push, put this behind him? It's because of who God is and because of who Jesus is. The Lord God, Samuel said, will not forsake His people for His name's sake. He is a good God, a gracious God, a forgiving God. And even if it's sometimes you wonder where is God in the face of evil, we need to remember that He is a good God. If 21st century Canada could get that point, if our friends and family members could get that point. It would make them far less likely, I suggest, to abandon Him, and far more likely to come to Him. Many of you remember the book that we studied last year, last summer, which was called Gentle and Lowly. It was a look at who God is, and in particular, who Jesus is, and it shows how good God is. In Matthew 11, it describes... Uh, we have a passage that's, that where the words gentle and lowly are taken from. Matthew 11:28 28 to 30, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Who doesn't need rest? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly. There's the title of that book. Gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Are you weary? Are you heavy laden, heavy burdened? His message is to us, come to me and I will give you rest. Come to me for the first time, if you haven't ever surrendered to Jesus. Return to him like a prodigal. Come when you sin. Come when life is tough when you're confused, but come." Now, one of the gems in that book, Gentle and Lowly, was a verse that the author showed, Ray Ortland showed, uh, or Dane Ortlund, I can't remember his name, showed from, verse, uh, from Isaiah 28. It describes God's planned work of salvation. Sorry, of destruction. A planned work of punishment and destruction, and it, the verse describes it as uh, alien and strange. The destruction is alien to God's nature. It's because God's, because God's first inclination is to forgive. So he will punish if we insist on it, but that's not what he wants to do. That's alien to his nature. His nature is to forgive. And he shows that in Exodus 20:34, a beautiful description of that, of uh, how he forgives in which Exodus 34 describes far more descriptions, has far more descriptions of his forgiving than of his punishment. Exodus 34, uh, verses 6 and 7, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, and then there's nine descriptions of his goodness. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and, and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, and transgression, and sin. There's nine. And then, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So yes, his punishment if necessary, but that's alien to him. Forgiving is what he did again and again to the people of Israel. And that jives with what, people, what Samuel told the people in the chapter we're studying. Sure, you made a big mess. And be sure to follow the Lord with all your heart. But don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. God is good. One extra little tidbit. Samuel is saying that he would be sinning if he failed to pray for his people. It's an extraordinary verse, 1 Samuel 12, 23. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Not just a good thing to do, for Samuel it would have been sin. I'm reluctant to map that one-for-one one to us. I don't know for sure that that would be a sin if I failed to pray for you and you failed to pray for me. It may be, <clears throat> but certainly it shows the importance of doing so of getting to know each other's stories, maybe arriving here early and leaving late so we can find out what we're going through, finding out how we can pray for each other, checking in on, encouraging each other, and then being sure sure to earnestly pray for another. I hope this has been an encouragement to you, to keep the faith, to be steady in following Jesus, to rest in Jesus. If you fear the Lord, not to be afraid to return to Jesus, who says, come, or to come to him for the first time. I want to conclude with verse 24. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. May the Lord Jesus Christ enable us to do so. Let us pray. Dear Father, our... Savior, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that if we fear you, we do not have to be afraid. We confess, we come to you every week confessing our sins. And we have many regrets. And sometimes, Lord, it seems that you're far from us. Lord God, we pray that you will be close to us. Help us to understand what it is not to be afraid, as well as to fear you. Oh God, we pray for our church. We pray for each of us in this culture where it is so easy to fall away. We pray that you will help us to be grounded on you on the rock, Lord Jesus. We pray especially for those who are younger, for whom it seems to be a particular draw. We ask that you'll draw back those who may have fallen away and that you'll keep us firm. We thank you for the Lord's Supper, which reminds us how you died for us, and how we are one with you. Lord Jesus, we also thank you for Ben. We pray that you'll bless him, keep him and his family, and all the other spiritual leaders of this church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.